Hi, welcome to Forbes India's The Startup Fridays podcast. I'm Hari Arkali, tech editor at Forbes India. In these podcasts, we'll bring you conversations with entrepreneurs who are finding opportunities in solving a variety of problems in multiple areas, from agriculture and satellite imagery to digital finance and cryptocurrencies. We will also talk to investors from venture capital companies and other folks who are playing a significant role in India's maturing startup scene. You can find a new episode every Friday evening. You can also find us live on Instagram every Friday morning. Stay safe and happy listening. Our guest today is uh, Ashwini Asokan. She's a co-founder and CEO of Mad Street Den, which is a computer vision and artificial intelligence technologies company. It's based in Chennai in India and Redwood City in California in the US. In 2017, Mad Street Den was uh, recognized among the 50 most promising startups in the world. Uh, and only one of three Indian companies to be on that list at that time. Uh, this was by Bloomberg. Ashwini has also written about her experience uh, in making Math Street then a company where half the staff uh, are women. Uh, she's an alumnus of Carnegie Mellon University and a product design and user experience specialist herself. Uh, I think she's also a trained dancer, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Ashwini, welcome uh, to this show. Fantastic to have you here. Thanks for having me. Mastery then, of course, is uh, well-known among India's tech startups, and uh, you've won many recognitions. Uh, for people who are less familiar with your work, uh, maybe you could start by telling us a bit about how you came to start this company. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, as some of you know, uh, Anand, my uh, co-founder and CTO, uh, and myself, um, um, and also our third co-founder, Costa, who uh, currently lives in the U.S., um, We've been talking about this company for a very long time. Um, our vision for um, where AI should head um, and what the future should look like, specifically in the context of all things AI. Uh, of, of all things AI. And one of the things that very early in our journey that uh, you know three of us were facing, and we come from very different backgrounds. Anand and Costa come from a very academic background, with professors, postdoc, neuroscientists, uh, you know, lots of degrees. Uh, I come from a product and a design background, kind of polar opposite ends of the spectrum industry, used to work at Intel for over 10 years. Um, each of us had kind of our own, you know, kind of issues with the way AI was being pursued in the early 2000s, the late 2000s. On the academic side, it really felt like most of the problems were being explored in highly, like, controlled situations. They were toy problems, right, or largely related to defense in some form, right, and then, uh, you know, UAVs and wars, right? Mm -hmm. And then at my end of the spectrum, it was, again, very experimental. You had really large companies like the Googles and the Intels of the world that were spending a lot of money in terms of experimenting, you know, on with AI, but again, you know, uh, very, very constrained in the way that they were uh, defining some of the questions around AI. And for us, you know, the mission right from the get-go was how do you make the world AI native? How do you make businesses across the globe AI native? How do you make employees AI native, right? And the question I'm really asking, you know, is AI meant to be in the hands of a few? Or is the question of, you know, uh, the, the very creation of AI, you know, be something that has to be in the hands of everyone, right? And that was really the question in some ways that motivated us to go down this journey. Um, of course, uh, one of the primary goals for us was to kind of crack the holy grail in some ways, which is build a very generalizable model of AI, um, a platform that can scale regardless of the application, regardless of the industry, regardless of the business that you're using. And so these are the kinds of things that really motivated us um, to get down and go into this. Mm. 
Uh, I'm quite curious. Mad Street Den is a fairly uh, unique name uh, to my mind. Is there a story behind the name? Um, yes, there is a story behind the name, but started your company i think it was around 2013 you came back to india uh, what was the uh, sort of what did you start with uh, and what was the opportunity you were looking at at that time and and give us a sense for what the company has grown into today sure sure so um, you know the first couple of years of our journey the pre mat bootstrapped right um, building out the underlying architecture of 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 the platform itself was very very you know core tech how should these systems behave um you know what are the different kinds of uh, you know um uh, applications we imagine on on running on top of this of this platform and then as a result of that how should the platform itself look like so early days lots of experimentation i would say um uh, on the underlying architecture of the of the of the systems that uh, we we wanted to build um somewhere around 2015 2016 we decided to actually say okay let's build a business on top of this it's it's beginning to feel like you know uh, we experimented a lot we worked with companies that were in gaming companies in uh, analytics uh, you know lots of different areas in the early stages as we were trying to see okay you know where is this going where can it go and i think we allowed ourselves to experiment pretty extensively in the first couple of years of our journey um as you can imagine we're still talking you know way ahead of the curve right the market was nowhere close to needing computer vision in the ways that uh, it needs today right so for us there was a lot of experimentation in that period to kind of try and answer some questions around where should we be taking this to market what kinds of problems can we solve and how should the systems be um around 2015 2016 we decided to go uh, start our journey with the retail sector because the retail industry felt much more ready than anyone else at that point um and so we took a very top down approach to working with the retail system picking up like literally the number one number two retailers in every geography we went kind of global from the get go um whether it was india south america the us japan europe we ended up picking some of the largest players in in the industry and that's saying okay here are some of the ways in which you know you ai can benefit your company right um whether it's in the form of organizing your catalogs whether it's in the form of you know um um you know automating your processes whether it's in the form of handling customer data and the kinds of things you can do there the the promise of ai really always came down to end to end automation right retail automation and the power of you know a system an ai system to take data right companies across the globe are sitting on so much data i think this push for big data really kind of pushed companies to collect all kinds of data whether it's you know inventory data you know uh, process data people data it doesn't matter what but most companies even today it's fair to say that 99% of that data is not really being used mm. right um that data is either flawed it's inaccurate uh you know companies lose millions and millions of dollars just with inaccurate data so the data is collected it's 
not cleaned, it's not organized, and it's not being used, right? And our promise at the end of the day was we built a series of applications with layers that actually do this way, right? We'll clean your data. We'll create data where there exists none. We'll have all this data talking to each other, and then we'll expose them across different parts of your processes so you can make the relevant decisions, right? And so that's kind of how we went to market with the retail industry in about 2015, 2016. And we launched a series of products all on that one singular platform to say that we'll bring together all these different types of data and then we'll have a series of applications that allow you to automate processes across your, you know, um, uh, across your company. Over the last year, year and a half, um, we started finding that the industry was actually using our APIs, using our systems in ways that we hadn't even intended for it to be used, um, which allowed us to kind of sit up and go, is the platform ready? Is the story of, you know, scale across industries actually, is this a good time? And so we started experimenting rather quietly uh, early in 2020, late 2019. We started working with edtech companies, uh, finance companies, uh, you know, insurance, healthcare. We started picking a handful of companies across very, very different industries to say, it's the same premise, right? You have something to sell, you have someone to sell it to, and you have processes. And there's automation required across all of these, and there's data cleanup and all kinds of work required across this, this entire, uh, you know, uh, set of functions. And so we've been working with companies across the globe, regardless of domains, for the last about year, year and a half now. Um, we solve problems like you can take a picture of a, of a math equation and then find the answers to it, right? You can take a picture of a skin condition and then immediately detect what's going on there. Uh, if it's retail, you can take a picture of, you know, a piece of clothing and then immediately understand what, what piece of clothing there. You can do video recognition. You can do personalization. So there's an entire suite of applications that you get to now build now that you have a platform that can handle all of it. So we are, I would say, we've kind of taken that first step towards building a system that can apply AI in a much more general form across industries. That's kind of our journey. Hmm. Uh, explain uh, what's at the heart of your technology a little bit more. What's the core technology that you've built now? Sure, sure. Um, you know, we are a company that believes that, uh, um, you know, we should not pick one line of approach to building uh, systems that need to scale. So we've got all, we explore all kinds of uh, uh, different types of tech, right? So whether it's looking at uh, image intelligence, video intelligence, basically all things computer vision, right? Whether it's NLP related, things related to text and meaning making using text, whether it's, uh, you know, generative networks, you know, uh, um, I think uh, many folks have probably seen this, but you know, we do things like uh, uh, if you give us a, a piece of clothing, we can actually generate the human model and, you know, the images of human models in different body types and different skin types, you know, and help you kind of put the piece of clothing on that, right, where there existed none before. And today, all of this is manual, right? You've got companies that are sitting and then taking pictures. You have to rent studios. The whole process takes up to three months, right? And especially, you know, during the corona, the COVID period, um, all of this kind of went for a toss, right? And so... We have a wide range of systems and, and tech inside the company that allows us to kind of use it complementary to solve specific problems, right? And and uh, and this is why, you know, as much as we're known for computer vision, um, it is the DNA of the company in many ways. Um, we have several other pieces that play it, right? For us, data is data. It doesn't matter if it's voice, image, video, text, irrelevant to us. We've got all the tech built into the platform to be able to um, actually process all of this. Hmm. Uh, I, I guess uh, for someone from outside uh, looking at Mathstreet, then uh, View.ai sort of comes across as your flagship uh, product. And now you also have uh, 
something called blocks.ai uh, so tell us and you said uh, customers are using these in ways that you didn't anticipate so uh, give us some examples and tell us how they are evolving sure, sure. Uh, yeah so view.ai is basically a play in the retail space hmm. view.ai runs on blocks okay that's it right so blocks is the underlying platform view.ai is is uh, you know one instantiation of that platform specifically for the retail industry right so it's almost you can almost think of it as a little bit of a branding exercise right so retail knows us as view.ai Mm. Um, but view runs on the block systems that we have mm. um, and in terms of use cases in terms of how you know for us the familiarity with retail allowed us to do things like you know uh, tag a catalog right today there are large groups of people sitting in warehouses sitting in product teams that are sitting and going okay that is you know an almond milk you know a uh, sachet or a or a tetra pack and there are all the aspects of it today everything is manual right and um, it is flawed because human fatigue like people can't just be sitting and typing stuff for hours at a stretch um it is crowdsourced so it's not always coming through you know the same group of people it's it's very arbitrary these are all just examples that that I'm kind of you know making this real right so you can automate it. you just have to put up a picture of that of that almond flour milk and you can basically extract all of that information right that's all that's all it takes now the same thing when applied to education instead of a carton of almond milk it's basically a math question right and we are looking at the equation we are looking at the science question we are reading the text we're able to detect what's going on understand and map it to a large library of questions a large library of you know basically subject matter right so instead of mapping you know an image of a carton of milk to the catalog here we're mapping a math equation to subjects Right, mm-hmm. uh, or large subject matter that this this company has, or in the case of healthcare, we're looking at a particular condition, right? The picture of, of of some kind of a skin condition, or a or a you know some healthcare condition that you have, and we're looking at it with the database of you know uh, images we have of that particular disease, for example, to be able to interpret what's going on, right? So these are examples of how the same story when retail applies to anyone, right? Regardless of what kind of a business you are, you have something to sell. so you have to organize that data you have to find a way to make you know a uh, meaning again coming back to edtech just simply because edtech is all the all the uh, you know rage right now in india uh, every simple single education company is sitting on large groups of team whose only job is to sit down and say okay this question belongs in this subject this class fourth grade you know this particular subject this particular chapter there are people whose full time job is to simply curate content education content right mm-hmm. and if you start to think about it education content is like a fourth grade science if you take that there's so many different types of content across different types of you know like the cbse icse there's just so many different varieties of content for that kid of that age who curates all that where does that content come who decides that this is all part of the structure this particular topic right and all of this can be automated right that's just an example of 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 what's possible so this is kind of how the organic evolution of the company happened we started looking at retail problems knowing that the same problems really apply regardless of the industry you're working in it's the same thing every business has these problems regardless of the domain and uh, where we are in our journey right now is seeing those use cases scale regardless it's the data that's different the use cases and the applications are same mm. uh, while trying to do some homework uh, for this conversation i came across one of your uh, earlier interviews uh, where you said that uh, taking the generalizable ai to 
a very large scale is where uh, you are very uh, interested in. That's uh, one big part of what you do at the company. So uh, give us a sense of uh, what you needed to do. Because it gave me the, I f reading that I felt that uh, having the generalizable AI did not necessarily mean that you could also scale it straight away. Uh, so tell us about what you did. Right. So again, this goes back to some of the origin story uh, associated with the company, I guess, is that you can try and solve really hard problems in in very, very controlled conditions, right? Uh, reality of the world is that, you know, data is broken. When you take the same model and then you give it, you know, we literally were on a call with a company a couple of days ago um, that deals with, um, you know, I don't want to go into the nuances here, but that deals with, uh, you know, loan-related stuff, okay? And uh, there's all kinds of assets related to the loan that they have to give. And, um, you know, they, these are companies that have used existing developer systems that are out there and models that are pre-existing to kind of apply them to try and see if they were able to classify that data. They couldn't. Like, off-the-shelf systems don't scale everywhere, right? Like, you don't have tools, don't fit everybody, right? And especially when you think, like, people can come up with millions of use cases, right? The same thing will just have a slight nuance to it. And then you all, all of a sudden have a new model or you have a complete a condition that you didn't anticipate, right? This is the most important, I think, uh, you know, one of the most important things that really drove us at MSD is that AI, when in highly controlled conditions, can work beautifully well, right? And can do a lot of things. The minute it scales and it starts seeing data that's not organized in a particular way or carefully curated, the systems break. Right? And that is the kind of problem that we are approaching. And whether it's in retail or now, as you start to look at uh, the other industries that we're working in, whether in finance or in or in edtech or in uh, you know healthcare, we're we're taking the same approach, right? Which is how do you start to imagine the cleaning of the data? How do you start to imagine creation of data where data doesn't exist before even applying that, right? And and for and in, in whatever form, right? So we're looking at it very systemically rather than looking at it as, you know, like like that, right? Mm. Um, and we've succeeded in building, and, and there are lots of moving parts to this. You need tools to, to clean the data. You need, uh, you know, tools to be able to organize that data. You need applications that can, you know, absorb all of that and then give it to uh, the person, the user on the other side, right? You need no-code tools that allow people like, you know, in, a, in the case of retail, it's product managers, it's marketing folks, it's merchandisers, it's catalog managers who want to interact and clean their catalog and do things with it, but they don't want to code, right? So there are so many layers to a system, uh, to an AI system, and we are building it that way. That is literally our approach to uh, building our systems. It's like we, and, and we are in the process of launching our developer community in the next uh, month, month and a half. Um, and we focused so much on no-code tools, on you know, SaaS approach because we wanted to hide in some of the AI and say, you know, guys, like you can you can control the AI. You don't need to see everything that's going on. We've also a very strong background in just basically API-led kind of uh, approach to applications. Now we're in that phase where we're ready to start opening up our tools, our systems, everything that we have had in the back to the developer community to say, you know, uh, you can do pretty much anything you want on the Blocks platform. Think of it as a, uh, almost the Lego is how we think about it, right? Like it's a series of blocks, which is how the name Blocks.ai really came out, came about. Uh, it's AI in a box, and it's you've got all these little blocks that you can put together in any any way, any form to achieve whatever goal it is that you're looking for. We are in the midst of a, an unprecedented uh, pandemic. Uh, did the pan COVID pandemic 
uh, change your business in any way? Yes, uh, it did. It definitely did. Um, I think all things pandemic, COVID has really, really accelerated digital adoption. Um, you know, industries that were so shy of going digital, um, mm. retail actually comes to mind. Retail is one of those uh, <laughs> industries that um, has always been a little shy of adopting digital the way that many other companies have. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of them just overnight, what do you do? You can't access your warehouse. You can't access your photo studios. You can't access the people that are sitting together doing this stuff, right? So you have to go digital, right? And it was really interesting fact, if you take even apparel, I think the statistic this year, early this year, uh, was that 70% of all apparel sales now happens online. Mm. Like as of this year, which is a huge number if you think about it in the world, right? Like 70% of any apparel fashion related sale basically is happening only online. The offline world is pretty much done with from that perspective. So yes, it played a huge role in I think adoption of digital tools and tech for several, several industries out there. Um, and I think this is part of the boom that we're seeing in the startup world in my opinion, is fueled by this, right? Mm. There's just opportunities that never existed before um, uh, and and uh, areas, uh, new applications that were not even present, not even needed, right, uh, until now. When I look at my children, uh, you know, they go to a very classic CBSE school in India uh, at, at Chennai. Uh, and it's so interesting to see what the transition they have gone through in the last 12 months, last, you know, 18 months, very traditional, going to school, sit down in that wooden desk and chair and then sit in front of the teacher was now, my daughter is just constantly all tabbing between Microsoft Teams and her Google Meet and her, you know, and her coursework in, in another app and, you know, just that happened in 12 months, right? Um, so I think every industry has gone through a very drastic transformation over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Mm. Did, did it, uh, I mean, even anecdotally, have you come across uh, evidence that it has also uh, made uh, the need for AI more urgent? Are people investing more in AI through the pandemic? Yes, yes. It's, it's you know, uh, company has had insane growth in the last 12 months. Mm. I can start off by saying that, right? Mm. Where prior to COVID, it was a lot of educating the industry, right? Going out there and telling them, here's how AI can help you guys. Here's how AI can change the way your people are working. Here are the use cases. Here's all the ROI. We're a very ROI-led company um, because we believe that for people to truly understand and adopt AI over time, people really have to understand the value. It's a lot of hand-waving. Sometimes it looks like magic, right? But people don't really, not necessarily understand how this is going to benefit me now, right? Like, show me the value, right? So we're a very value and ROI-led company to begin with. That's how we were structured um, from the early days. And uh, I can tell you that right now, that's it's it's such a shift instead of us going out there and saying, hey, here are the things that can happen to you and the value you can see. It's just like people coming in and asking us exactly what they want, right? Mm -hmm. And saying, I want catalog management. I want AI to do this. I want this. I want this. It's a very pointed set of questions, which again, it's a, it's, it clearly signifies that the industry has just gone through this massive kind of change over the last uh, year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. I guess auto, the mention of ROI is also a good uh, place for me to segue into asking you about being the CEO of a corporation, uh, moving from AI and tech. Give us a sense of uh, the scale of operations uh, of Math Street then today. Sure. Um, we are across 
four, five countries. Um, we are uh, we have our largest team out of Chennai, but uh, we've got um, our leadership team based out of um, SF. Um, we've got uh, a pretty big team in Bangalore. Um, we just started our uh, Middle East Dubai operations. We've got an office and team out of Japan um, in Europe. Um, so um, we've been global from the get-go. It's been one of the it's been a very important thing for me uh, to make sure that we were global from the get-go because it was important to understand if the problems across the world were similar versus, you know, getting stuck in a rat hole. Again, AI, more generalizable approach. So it was kind of literally in the principles of the way that we wanted to build the company to begin with. Um, we have over 250 people today um, uh, across AI, engineering, customer success, marketing, sales, product, um, you know, several different organizations, typical of an enterprise tech company. Mm. Uh, I recall uh, uh, one of your tweets uh, where you uh, told founders that uh, you do realize that the money will uh, at some point run out. Uh, I think this was a few months back because uh, it has been on my mind to invite you on this show for a while. Uh, so anyway, uh, long, long question short. Uh, in comparison with the startups today which are raising insane amounts of money, and becoming unicorns like you know just like that uh, your fundraising looks like really modest i mean uh, what i could find is less than 30 million dollars is what you've raised uh, so what is your approach yeah. what is your approach to funding and you know sure um we have raised close to 30 million dollars in our journey in the last uh, four or five years now um i think today if you look at the story from two years ago um you know when we raised our seed uh, seed round 2015-16, it was one of the largest seeds. When we raised our Series A, it was kind of a moderate Series A. When we raised our Series B, it was kind of on market terms. Today, oh, 2021, uh, is a joke in so many ways uh, because, you know, 30 million is nothing. Look at the way we're talking about 30 million today. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're talking yeah. about 30 million like it's 30 million, what? Um, uh, and I think it's a it's a good thing and a bad thing for the ecosystem. The reason it's a good thing is because um, it's time. It's time for the Indian ecosystem to spin up and move. This is our time, right? Um, I think we are having so there are so many success stories. Um, you know, I for one am uh, you know anticipating with bated breath everything from Freshworks and Charge B and you know like obviously we're Chennai down, so uh, there's a little bit of a bias there in terms of. Uh, but there are so many success stories um, already in the making and I think uh, what we are seeing is basically a waterfall effect right? mm. um, we're finally sitting up and I, I think Indian companies although MSD is not an Indian company but Indian companies in general have always raised a lot lesser much more modestly than, than their counterparts in, in the valley and that's not the case anymore so mm. I think it's a wonderful thing that it's not a case anymore because we are finally behaving like uh, a global, um, um, you know, startup ecosystem, and I think that's a really important thing. Uh, the downside of it, of course, is we're going to see all the all the things we saw in the valley. Uh, we're going to see all of that. I I am very sure we're going to see all of that, right? A lot of bad behavior, a lot of irresponsible use of money. I think it just comes with part of it, right? It cycles. The stuff goes in cycles, and uh, mm -hmm. it's just it's just part of the course. People have to learn from their mistakes, uh, make sure they don't do it again, uh, and that cycle will continue. There are so many companies that we saw in that kind of zone that raised a ton of money, and then 
you know, regulatory fraud. We saw, we saw all kinds of things in the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, my hope is we don't see the same extent of stuff that out here. Um, but uh, you know, hey, it is what it's going to be. And uh, but uh, you know, for me, I'm just really excited. Um, you know, obviously, MSD is the, uh, our growth is 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 one to be uh, happy about. And so we are at that point where. There are going to be subsequent fundraisers. There's more money coming. There's more growth coming. But mm. I see funding as uh, as yet another milestone in the company, not one that uh, fuels the core DNA of a company. Um, uh, using it as the north star to drive sustainable businesses is not the the most ideal thing, right? It's simply a tool in your toolkit. Capital mm. is a tool in your toolkit, and when used wisely, it can do a lot of good for the company. Um, so it's just yet another tool in my toolbox. Hmm. Uh, with with the focus on uh, ROI and you know, frugal use of money, uh, are you have you been profitable already for a while? Uh, where are you at on that? Hmm. Uh, we're not. MSD is too young in its hmm. journey to be talking about uh, being a profitable company. We can hmm. choose to be profitable anytime we want. Um, uh, the question is less about that and it's more about growth. We are investing very aggressively in growth right now, mm-hmm. um, which explains, you know, uh, the global teams, the, the the moving beyond retail into subsequent categories. And so uh, the name of the game is growth. It's mm-hmm. not profit for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the funding, uh, you know, uh, comments kind of triggered my, jog my memory, uh, which when I first read it, it uh, startled me a little bit. And it also speaks to another uh, area which, uh, you are, you are very passionate about because I've read some of the things you've written about it. I'm referring to women in the workforce. Uh, I think BCG uh, came out with a report around 2019, and they uh, they said based on their survey that uh, when a woman founder goes for a funding uh, when she meets investors, she gets offered half as much as a male counterpart. All other things being equal, I was really startled when I first read it. And they also uh, pointed out that on the flip side, a woman founder-led startup tends to be 10% more revenue productive or some some number like that. Uh, so, and, and you wrote about uh, having uh, half your staff uh, as women uh, back in 2015. In 2018, you said you're still on that uh, track. Um, tell us what, what you did uh, uh, and uh, and the difference that it made. Yeah, no, all of those points are true. Um, I, you know, when I feel beat, I routinely go back to uh, a quote that Katrina Lake, one of the first folks to go IPO with a startup in the valley with Stitch Fix, um, mm-hmm. one of the first interviews she gave after she went IPO was when she said, I never had the option for endless amount of capital. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn to build an efficient company because I had no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Stitch Fix, and now we have Rental Runway coming up, we've seen uh, Vimeo, we've seen so many success stories coming up in the US. Um, uh, and uh, I think it's just a question of time. I really do think it's just a question of time. Um, I already see the next generation of entrepreneurs kind of breaking through a lot of the uh, you know, those barriers. It still exists. I mean, I just tweeted a couple of days ago saying like, um, in 2020, uh, 2 point something percent of funding went to women. In 2021, that came down to 1.6%. Mm. So um, it's pretty, and women are leaving the workforce in massive numbers, large numbers, right? So on one hand, I do think things are getting better. On the other hand, I do think things are getting worse. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of work needed, 
lot of work needed. I think uh, Serge and Sequoia, uh, you know, and the teams that uh, just announced, uh, you know, Sequoia Spark, which is like hundred thousand dollars, just free money, no equity, no nothing, a fellowship program with all the key mentors and all the packets. Um, in, in one way, people, it has to be systemic. It has to be at the seed level, at the growth level, at the IPO level, at the you know organizational level in terms of hiring, in terms of management. So it needs to be looked at systematically and systemically. Um, and I think that's the only way we're going to make change. I mean, the way I see it, um, at MSD, we're doing change in the bubble that we live in. Mm. Um, and my bubble extends to a sequoia of Falcon and Xfinity, my investors, and uh, my participation in their world and making that uh, also, um, you know, uh, diverse. And yeah, I think uh, changing one thing at a time is how I believe change really comes. And so I think that's kind of what we're doing at MSD. I think that's another thing that you wrote about, right? Putting one step in front of other. Uh, I read it somewhere recently. Uh, uh, at, yeah. at 60 plus uh, uh, team members, you are still uh, half uh, women. Now at 250 plus, have you been able to sustain it? Yes, yes, we have. Although this year, I can tell you, um, we have people leaving the workforce in oh. large numbers. We're seeing women leave the workforce a lot. Mm. And so we are doing a lot of things, including encouraging back to work programs, you know, people that have not been in the workforce, helping them come back into the workforce. While we have been able to manage uh, the balance for most part of the teams, we are beginning to see a lot of change in the market right now. And so we're kind of preempting that to make sure that that balance doesn't get off. Mm. For you, uh, going from uh, CEO of a startup to uh, a well-established uh, larger company, uh, what were some of the biggest uh, lessons that you learned as a CEO and what were your biggest challenges so far? Well, I'll start with that one foot in front of the other. <laughs> uh, it can get really overwhelming, right? And, and I've said this before as well. Sometimes running a company, founding a company and running it is like, uh, uh, you know, juggling a bunch of... Uh, picking time bombs mm. <laughs> and you have to figure out which one you're going to drop, which one's going to, you know, kind of explore on you and which one you're going to be okay with picking up and then walking and which ones you can't drop and let it explore. Mm. Um, that That's kind of the visual that I think about every time I think about what it means to be running a company because there's so many things, right? And, and you're always juggling between all the different things um, that are required. But I think what really helps is that, you know, I run by uh, a set of guidelines I set for myself every day um, one like I said right like one step in front of the other I'm, I'm very all about KPIs goals you know I have like five six different books in my journals in my at my desk right now you know monthly I look at my goals monthly I look at my goals quarterly I look at my goals annually I look at my goals daily mm. um, I know what is noise um, I have you know kind of groups of uh, one framework for me is negotiable and non-negotiable at any given point in time, I write down what is a negotiable and what is a non-negotiable for me. Um, and I, you know, and that changes. And being able to look at your work, at your life, at a daily level, weekly level, monthly level, quarterly level, and annual level allows you to understand what is negotiable and non-negotiable at any given point in time, right? Because at the end of the day, this job uh, is all about prioritization. That's it, right? You just have to figure out what you're going to drop and what you're going to uh, you know, address. And so it's really important to be organized. Uh, I am uh, like a bit of an OCD when it comes to keeping my life organized. Um, uh, the other part of it is uh, about dreaming really big. Uh, I'm always reaching out to things that are out of my reach. 
nothing motivates me like a challenge and i'm constantly making sure that you know there's a balance between constantly you know reaching for something that's way out of line or way out of my reach and making sure that i am in control of certain things right that is that that balance is also equally important um i uh you know I spend a lot of time with my people uh with my team um uh, we don't believe in hierarchies we don't believe in you know um it's a, it's a we tried a lot even at the scale to kind of keep a flat organization um where people just get in a room highly multidisciplinary teams constantly thinking together building stuff together and uh, you know we don't have hierarchy or or parts of the organization where people just manage people like that kind of stuff does not exist in msc um every manager is a doer every manager is a builder every vp is a builder right so it's a very build centric uh, company um and uh, it allows us to work together and and kind of just be a part of something that is uh, much bigger than any one of us and i think um, yeah <laughs> those are broadly the kind of guidelines and principles that i look by Uh, Ashwini, maybe we could take a quick uh, two or three questions from uh, the audience. Uh, here's the first one. It's a fairly uh, general question. Uh, maybe I can try and sharpen it a little bit. Uh, uh, today, there's a sense uh, among experts, folks like you, that everybody should know a little bit about AI and how it's going to affect their lives. So, what's your advice on what we should uh, understand about uh, AI and how it will affect us? Uh, yeah. I think there are um two three things I I you know I would encourage everybody to kind of get on top of the first one being no code tools there are tons of no code tools out there in the AI space that allow you to understand uh you can do your job way better than you do right now if you find a way to just go and use those no code tools mm-hmm. like those those AI tools that kind of hide the AI but allow you to do things right using a certain kind of an interface um and and so i would say i would encourage everybody to be a part of this to go it's almost like literacy uh, ai literacy and you can do it without learning how to code without learning actually how to build ai or build from scratch right because they these tools abstract out the ai and the code to much more you know almost like human speak like like uh, you know uh, very focused on the functions that uh, you want to achieve and you kind of start to get a sense of how the ai at the back is behaving right so this is something that i encourage everybody to do um, you should be ai literate in some form even with no code uh, ai tools that are out there so that's one uh, the second one is um, i think you know if you um, do code and if you're a computer uh, engineer of some kind um, i would say uh, start using model libraries out there start using start playing with systems that are already out there uh to understand how you can put together systems ai systems right uh increasingly is almost think of this as the next level after no code which is you don't have to be an ml engineer you don't have to be you know an ai scientist you can start to work with tools that allow you to understand how you can build ai systems right so there are a lot of those developer tools out there that i you know that i think the the world is moving there so every engineer can become an ml engineer it is literally our belief that msd that every engineer that walks through you know uh, msd at some level is an ai engineer or is getting there right at some point in the journey and we believe this is true so um and then the third part of it is you know if you look at it through the lens of product marketing customer centric roles uh journalism we hire a lot of journalists by the way at msd we hire a lot of storytellers um i think it's really important for people working in any field to really figure out you know um the space of ai in their field right and and you can you can say stories of ai you can 
become part of startups you can there are so many ways of thinking about being a part of the ai ecosystem right you can be a storyteller you can be a content person you can be a product person you can be a you know customer management and a sales person and you can still play a huge role in shaping the future of ai and i think you know we are constantly hiring people from extremely uh, uh non traditional backgrounds for a lack of a better way to put it mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of bringing them into kind of these different fields and the reason we continue to do that is because we want people with varied um you know thought processes people that come from very different backgrounds that can uh um uh, kind of come in and infuse some of that thinking there so i think ai is for everyone everyone can be a part of this um uh, of this story and and how this works out in the future hmm. okay one quick question i think this is kind of the fear a general fear uh i mean i guess throughout history i mean technology led automation is always replace people uh ai seems to be able to do that in a much more drastic manner uh, what is your thinking on this yeah it is true i think historically i mean all of history we've seen um humanity here technology was there it treated the railway the same way cars the same way tvs the same way telegraphs the same way um i think ai of course just changes the scale of fear and the scale of damage possible <laughs> and damage that's possible and i think um some of those fears are very very rooted in reality um i think the first one is big tech right when big tech and you know big brother owns all your data it's all about it's the surveillance you know dystopian set of stories and i think it's very true we're living it as we speak <laughs> we are living in a lot of that dystopian future which is not so future is happening as we speak with our data being you know monitored and everything we're doing monitored so i do believe that there is a lot to be scared about and i think policy you know privacy laws uh you know we need organizations in place that protect us um from this um and a responsible ethical ways to build ai i still don't think there is any thought around this in the industry today um um and i think that is a huge part of the way that and this is all the more of a reason why you know at msd we believe that everybody should be creating ai right so the more you the more types of ai you have let's have 7 billion varieties of ai right like why should we have only the varieties that come out of a google or that come out of a twitter or that come out of you know i don't know calendar for that matter right um uh why do we have only those types of ai let's have ai being built by everyone across the globe right and and have so many varieties so i think lots of issues on the creation side lots of issues on the consumption side lots of issues on the surveillance side um the answer is yes there is a lot to be scared of um and 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 the other side of that answer is we need to get to work so if there are people on this call that are sitting and listening there are people from policy from law from all of these different backgrounds now is a great time to sit up and go you know how do you be a part of this right so there's two sides to every story uh wonderful to have you here with us this morning thank you so much for making thanks, time for it brilliant thanks for having me hari it was a pleasure thank you and that's what that was uh, ashwini asokan uh, co-founder and ceo of mad street den that's it for this week startup fridays next week i'll be back uh, with a partner at a vc firm a pretty well known one that has backed several uh, um, successful startups in india and uh, in, uh, other parts of the world as well Until then wherever you are uh, I hope you are staying safe and doing well uh, have a great friday and a wonderful weekend ahead thank you for joining us